0: This morning, in light of the uh, tragic events that have happened as a result of Hurricane Dorian, specifically in the Bahamas, and I know that we've had at least some minor effects in comparison, I thought we would take a break today from our study in the book of Acts to look at a text that is going to um, to speak directly to the um, the reality that we live in a broken world, a fallen world. And so today we're going to be looking at uh, Romans 8, chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. I'm going to start reading today in verse 12 just to, to set us in context, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, we wait for it with patience pray with me heavenly father this is your word and you have promised that your word will not come back to you empty that it will accomplish exactly what you desire that you, it will achieve the purpose for which purposes for which you send it and so today lord i pray That despite my weaknesses, that your word would come with great power. Anoint me with your spirit, Lord, to do, Lord, what only you can do. Save and sanctify your people. Build up your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in an article uh, put out by CNBC earlier this week, they reported this. The smell of death... Hung over parts of the great Abaco Island in the northern Bahamas on Friday as relief workers sifted through the debris of shattered homes and buildings in a search expected to dramatically drive up the death toll from Hurricane Dorian. Dorian, the most powerful hurricane to ever hit the Bahamas, swept through the Abaco Islands and Grand Bahama Island earlier this week, leveling entire neighborhoods and knocking out key infrastructure, including airport landing strips and a hospital. Hundreds, if not thousands, are still missing in the country of about 400,000 people, and officials say the death toll, which stands at 30, is likely to shoot up as more bodies are discovered in the ruins and floodwaters left behind by the storm. This is a quote You smell the decomposing bodies as you walk through Marsh Harbor, said Sandra Sweeting, 37, in an interview amid the wreckage on Great Abaco. It's everywhere. There are a lot of people who aren't going to make it off of this island. I know that most of us in here have probably had the the chance to see images from the Bahamas and the destruction that was caused by Hurricane Dorian. And I, I don't know exactly what your response is, but I'm sure it was somewhat similar to mine. A response that my heart just aches. It aches for the people there that are going through this travesty as beautiful and delightful as this world often is by god's grace hurricane dorian is a sober reminder that creation is out of joint it's instead of promoting life and flourishing it, it turns up death and decay everything in this creation wears out everything dies everything returns to dust Our passage this morning faces this dreadful reality head on and stirs us up to renew our hope in the liberation that is to come to us who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ when he is revealed in glory. And so we are going to be looking today again at at the book of Romans. Book of Romans is a very important book, obviously, in the canon of Scripture. It gives us uh, depth of understanding of the gospel and if you were to, to, to try to, to identify the theme of this book, it's found in the very first chapter. Uh, we mention it a lot around here. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God. So what Paul does in, in this letter in chapters 1 through 4, he is laying out the center of the gospel. And the center of gospel of the gospel is simply this, that It is justification. We are are declared righteous before a holy God by faith. What that means is that the righteousness that that God requires, he gives to us as a gift to all who believe in his son. And so chapters, that's chapters 1 through 4, chapters 5 through 8, which is where we're going to look at today, our our, uh, passages in chapter 8 today. What he's doing in, in the, this section of his letter is he is showing how, how this, this being, being declared righteous in God's sight, what it results in. And it, what it results in is hope. Hope for what? Hope for glorification and for eternal life. And that's what we're going to see today in this passage. So the main thing that I want you to see, the main application that I want you to take away today from, from this passage of Scripture is this grown in hope because the jaw-dropping magnificence of the glory of the future glory makes the bitterness of present suffering insignificant in comparison. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This starts out with, for I consider. This for is connecting us to what he has just said in the previous section. He's just talked about how, how we are, are children of God. And that if we're children of God, what that means is that we are heirs. Heirs of God himself and co-heirs with Christ. And then he says something seemingly strange. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So think about Christ in in his life on this earth. Christ suffered, and then he entered glory. He was glorified. And so we are called to to follow in his footsteps, that we are to suffer in this broken world, and, and then we are to enter glory just like him. To suffer with Christ is simply to faithfully follow Christ in suffering. Paul says that I consider, I consider, what does that mean? Paul is is thinking about, tossing in his mind, tossing about, reasoning, thinking, and making a logical deduction based on what he understands about the gospel, based on the promises of the gospel. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, what kind of sufferings is he talking about? This is the sufferings of this present time. Or this present age. What that means is it means the full spectrum of the sufferings that exist in this fallen world. And so that means, that means suffering as a consequence of your own sin. Suffering as a consequence of somebody else's sin. Suffering from persecution. Suffering from disease. Suffering from sickness. And a number of other ways that we suffer in this world, especially as we are so keenly aware of today, suffering as a result of natural disasters like hurricanes. He says that, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be, is to be revealed to us. With the glory to be revealed to us. What he's saying is that, look, if you are to place all the sufferings that you encounter in this present life, no matter how intense they are, no matter how heavy they are, no matter how bad they hurt, how painful they are, and you were to place glory, this glory to be revealed, right beside it, what you would see is that your sufferings seem, oh, so insignificant in comparison. Paul makes the same point in Second Corinthians 4:17 by using a different metaphor. He uses the metaphor of a weight. Look what he says. He says, "For this light." Momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So, if you were to place your sufferings on a scale and you were to place this glory that is to be revealed on the other end of the scale, what you would see is the glory far outweighs the suffering. Paul's point is that the bitterness of the sufferings is not comparable to the magnificence of the glory. As heavy as suffering feels, Paul said it is light when you place it on the scale with the glory. So so what is this glory to be revealed? What is it? What is he talking about here? Well, simply he's talking about the glory of Christ when he comes again. The glory of Christ when he comes again. What does the word glory mean? It's a difficult word to define, but I think John Piper helps us to at least get closer to that. I think this is a biblically faithful Definition. He says, Piper says this that glory is the public display of the infinite beauty and worth of God. The public display of the infinite beauty and worth of God. Jesus says this about his second coming in Mark 13. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So the glory to be revealed, it not only is a glory that shows us the infinite worth and the infinite beauty of Christ, but it's also a glory that will apprehend us, and it will transform us, and it will liberate us. In other words, the glory to be revealed results in our glorification. That is that final part of our salvation where we are fully and finally liberated from sin and death and from this fallen world that we live in. So Paul's point in this this verse here is that the jaw-dropping magnificence of the glory to be revealed makes the bitterness of present suffering insignificant in comparison. And so as we look here at at the rest of the verses today, verses 19 through 25, what Paul's going to be doing is he's going to be teasing out the details of this. Teasing out the details of this liberating glory to encourage us to renew our hope in the midst of this fallen world that is subject to a lot of suffering. First thing I want you to see in verses 19 through 22, creation groans in hope of liberating glory. Creation groans in hope of liberating glory. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What is meant by creation? What's meant by that? Well, creation, he means all of creation, both animate and inanimate, both visible and invisible, not counting humanity, minus humanity. He's going to get to humanity after this. And so what he does is Paul is going to use a literary device here called personification, which simply just means that he is going to speak of creation as if it's a person with an intellect and with feelings. And he's doing that for, for a specific reason to highlight the point that creation also has a stake at Christ's glory being revealed. And we'll see that in just a bit. It says this, that it waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. To wait for it with eager longing, it means to wait for something that you want so intensely with confident anticipation that it will most certainly be fulfilled. Why would creation be so interested in the revealing of the sons of God? Well, it's not that creation is so interested in the specific identities of, of Jeff and of Mike and you know everybody else that's in this room, that's 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 uh, that's saved. It's not that it's interested in the specific identities, but what it is interested in, it's interested in the glory that will reveal the sons of God. That is Christ's glory that will reveal the sons of God. And so, why would creation be so interested in the glory that reveals the sons of God? Well, verses twenty through twenty-two are going to answer that question for us. What it's going to do, what Paul's going to do, is he's going to show us creation's experience in the past, in the future and in the present. And so first, let's look at the past. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And so what this verse does is, this verse states and tells us that Creation was subjected to futility in the past, and this is certainly, most certainly, referring to uh, the curse that God uh, put on the natural order following Adam's sin. Futility—he he subjected it to futility. What does that mean? What does futility mean? Futility means meaninglessness, worthlessness, uh, not meaninglessness, uh, purposelessness, frustration. To be subjected to futility, futility means that the creation was authoritatively brought under by God himself this dreadful condition of futility as a consequence of Adam's sin. So sin has brought that. In Genesis 3, we, we see that God is cursing the ground because of Adam's sin. It would produce thorns and thistles. Pain and toil would, would characterize man's relationship with, with the ground. The natural order was placed under a curse. In verse 21 which we'll get to in just a bit, Paul refers to what's happened as bondage to corruption. Corruption is is this idea of decomposition or decay. And so all we have to do today is to to look at the Bahamas and we see that entire communities have been leveled. People are suffering. There are people that are are dead. People are injured. Hearts are bleeding and sorrow and pain. Why? Why? Because creation is in bondage to corruption. Hurricane Dorian is just one of those countless proofs of its cursed condition. Before we shake our fists, though, at creation, we need to understand something. We need to understand that creation is not responsible for its dreadful condition. Okay? It didn't make a choice which resulted in it being subjected to futility. As we've already seen and looked at in Genesis 3, creation was cursed by God. God, who is the creator and owner and judge of all things, placed his creation under a curse as a consequence of Adam's sin. So if we we're going to shake our fist at anything, we need to shake our fist at sin. Yes, Adam's sin, but also our sin. You see, if we think that our sin is any less curse-worthy than Adam's, we're living in delusion. See, Paul has already showed us in Earlier in the book of Romans, in, in chapter 3, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in chapter 6, that that the wages of sin is death. What that means is, is that, that our, our sin has earned a paycheck. And that paycheck that it's earned is death. Physical death, not only physical death, but also ultimate death, which is ultimate, eternal separation from God, experiencing nothing but the wrath of God in hell forever. Listen, God is so holy, so holy that one sin resulted in creation's fall. God is so holy that not only can, can murderers and rapists not stand in his holy presence, but also liars and thieves and the sexually immoral cannot stand in his holy presence in fact anyone who has broken any of his righteous commandments in thought word or deed And so if we need to shake our fist at anything it's it's sin we play a role in that nonetheless when adam fell the rest of creation fell with him creation was made to share in adam's uh, the curse of adam's sin it was subjected to this futility. It was subjected to this bondage to corruption. And so, <clears throat> this past event is the reason why we see the present reality of the way that creation is today. Uh, creation marked by disharmony and decay and death. But by God's grace, that's not the only thing that took place in Genesis 3 when God cursed the creation. In our passage today, Paul says that God subjected creation in hope. In hope. See, the wonder of God's curse in Genesis 3 is that along with the curse came hope. Genesis 3.15, when God cursed the serpent, he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is known as the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first gospel. This promise here, right here in the midst of the curse, is a promise that a Savior is coming who will crush Satan underneath his feet. He will triumph over him. He will earn victory for his people. He will reverse the curse that Satan's temptation brought forth. As the rest of Scripture affirms, this reversal of the curse not only affects God's people, but it also affects the creation itself. So creation was subjected to futility, with a promise that its bondage to corruption would be temporary, that it wouldn't last forever. How about the future? What's, what's going to be the future experience of creation? Paul says this in verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so this verse tells us that creation is going to be liberated from its bondage in the future. It's gonna be liberated from something and it's gonna be liberated to something. And so first, let's look at what is is it gonna be liberated from? Paul says that it will be liberated from its bondage to corruption. As I mentioned earlier, bondage to corruption means that it is enslaved to decay and decomposition. You see, there's a reason why there are not any plants or any animals or any sea creatures that are alive today that were alive when God created created it. And the reason is is because there is this inescapable cycle in this bondage of corruption and the cycle is this conception, birth, growth, decline, death and decomposition. That is bondage to corruption. Creation will be liberated from this bondage to corruption, but what will it be liberated to? Paul says that creation will be liberated to or into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So just as the, cur- the, the the creation shared in the curse of humanity's sin, so now the creation is going to share in its freedom, the sons of God, the freedom that comes with this glory that frees the sons of God. Both the Old Testament and, and New Testament, they look forward to this, this future glorious transformation of creation. We could go a lot of different places. I, I thought that, Isaiah eleven six six through nine would be a good place for us to just set our minds on quickly this morning. Look at the picture of, of, of this, this new earth with, with Christ himself reigning, a, a new earth with peace and harmony, and, and look at the reality that these things are, are not able to happen in this present creation. And so, verse six, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Creation waits for eager longing for the glory that is to be revealed because that glory will forever liberate it from the script that is in today, the script of death and decay into the script of life and flourishing like it was designed to in Genesis 1. Let's look at the present creation. What's the presence, uh, creation's present experience? Paul says this in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So far we've seen that creation was subjected to futility in the past. That creation will be liberated from that in the future. And now what we're seeing is that presently creation is groaning in pain. Creation is groaning in pain. He says that the whole creation has been groaning together. You know what a groan is? A groan is, is that when you're in so much pain, and you're in so much agony, and you're in so much distress, that you can't even formulate words to express yourself. All you can do is, ah, ah. And I think that uh, it's very important that we understand this metaphor that Paul gives us here. Of This metaphor of childbirth, and this is incredibly uh, uh, timely for me. I'm only four months of being out of the labor and delivery room. I didn't have a baby. My wife did. <laughs> four months out, I remember, like it was yesterday, because it was almost yesterday, I remember the pain and the agony that I saw my wife in. I heard the groans, and I'm pretty sure the rest of the floor at the hospital heard the <laughs> groans, she'll tell you that right she was in pain she was in agony but she was groaning but she was groaning in hope hope of what hope of little Haddon who's on her chest right now and when that hope came to her and when that little baby came and was placed on her chest what happened all of a sudden it was like a light switch there wasn't any pain anymore at least if there was, she wasn't showing it. She was in so much joy because the preciousness of the, the baby that she held in her arms was far more significant than the pain that she had just endured. And that is the picture that we have. That's what creation is doing. It's groaning in pain under the curse. It's intense. It's painful. It it groans in hope, though, waiting eagerly, enduring suffering until the prize that it expects is revealed. And that prize is the glory of Christ that will liberate it from its bondage so creation groans in hope of liberating glory what does that have to do with us (laughs) well christians also groan in hope of liberating glory that's verses 23 to 25 look at how paul connects creation's experience to our experience as christians verse 23 and not only the creation but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So in this verse, we're going to see two clear comparisons between creation and Christians. Between creation and Christians, that is groaning and waiting. Groaning and waiting. First, creation groans and we groan. Paul says that, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. A great tension exists in every Christian's life. We are saved, but we have not yet received the, the full benefits of our salvation. We live between the already of salvation and the not yet of salvation. And so Paul is, is, in this text, he is going to, to allude to that when he says, in a couple of places, but he starts out first with this idea, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. What is the first fruits? Well, first fruits is an agricultural term. Uh, it means the, the, literally the first fruits of the harvest. It's the beginning of the harvest that actually anticipates the full harvest that is to come in the future. So it anticipates that and so when paul says that we have the first fruits of the spirit what that means is not that we have a little bit of the spirit now and we're going to get more of him later what he's speaking of is he's speaking of the work of the spirit so we have we have the work of the spirit is going to be doing more work in us and what paul teaches in other places you may remember like in ephesians and in 2 corinthians is that the spirit is the is the deposit or the guarantee or the pledge or the down payment of what is to come. That is our future redemption. But as we live between this already and not yet, we all know this too well. We groan. We groan. We groan because we live in a, in a broken world with broken people in broken bodies. As I look at our prayer list here at church, I see so many reasons to groan. Diseases ravaging bodies. Death tearing away loved ones from us. Sin that is threatening to separate families and marriage, split up marriages. See, all of these reasons, all of these things are, 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 are appropriate reasons to groan. And we need to, I'ma I'm take a little 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 sidebar here and just say that we need to make sure that we have a theology of suffering. We have room for suffering in our theology. Because this this text is it, is 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 speaking to that reality that, guess what? We should groan at our fallen condition. We should groan because it is painful. And we should groan because we're longing for something else. But there is something that is also a great encouragement that is to be found in this comparison with creation's groaning and our groaning. And if we're not careful, we can easily miss it. You see, the comparison is not just that creation groans and and we groan. The comparison is, is that we both groan like a mother who is in labor, laboring and expecting a prize, expecting something that far surpasses all the pain. And so we are just like creation. We are groaning, but we are groaning in hope, enduring suffering until that priceless possession that priceless prize that we've waited for is seen and what what that prize will help us to do as we continue to look forward to it is to to see that that the prize actually makes the bitterness of suffering seem insignificant in comparison that's what this hope of this, this hope is what this uh, second comparison that Paul gives is, is about he says creation not only groans and we groan but creation waits eagerly for liberating glory And we wait eagerly for liberating glory. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What are we waiting eagerly for? For adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here again, we see this tension of living between the already and the not yet of salvation. The moment that a person places their trust in Christ, they are immediately at that moment, they are an adopted child of God. Paul's just said that in verse 15. He said, you've received, past tense, when they were converted, you received the spirit of adoption. And in verse 16, he had just said that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. Presently, we are God's children. So that adoption has already taken place in In the past, at the moment of conversion, yet we still have not received the full benefits of that adoption. What will those full benefits entail? Part of that, Paul says, is the redemption of our bodies. What does redemption mean? Redemption refers to the purchasing of uh, freedom for someone who is enslaved. Purchasing of freedom for someone who is enslaved. This is the heart of the gospel. The purchasing freedom for someone who's enslaved. Christ the Redeemer came to purchase freedom for His people. How did He do that? Maybe a better question is, is how do you know that you've been redeemed? Well, you know because you trust the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is simply this. That you and I have, have broken God's law. We compare ourselves to the Ten Commandments. What we get to see really easily is we have broken all of them. We are guilty in the sight of God. God was so gracious, though, to give us his law, to show us what our verdict is going to be before the day we stand before his judgment throne. He's given us his law so that we might see that we have to stop trying to trust in ourselves in order to be made right with Him, and we have to transfer our trust to something else. What's that something else? Well, God the Father sent His Son into the world. Fully God and fully man, He was born under that same law that we've broken. But He was born under the law, and He fulfilled the law at every point, which means He was sinless. He was perfect. He was obedient at every point. He fulfilled all righteousness, the Scriptures tell us. When He went to the cross, He went to pay a debt. That debt was not his own debt. That debt was the debt for his people. As he hung on that cross, what was essentially taking place is that Christ himself was, was going and, and paying the fine for all of the sins of his people. That he experienced the, the full measure of the wrath of God that was due to his people on their behalf. And as he, as he suffered and died and completed that, he said, it is finished. He laid down his life. He was placed in a tomb, dead, that was sealed. But on the third day, God brought him back to life again, proving that his payment that he had made for his people was satisfactory to him, proving that he is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he'll do. Well, what does that mean to you and me? What that means is this, that right now we stand as a people who are separated from God because of of our, our sin. If we are not in Christ, we stand separated from him. What Christ came to do is to pay that debt that would bring a reconciliation. So we see a pile of evidence on the table in God's courtroom. Christ paid that debt for you. Your sin was imputed to him and his righteousness was imputed to you as if you'd lived that perfect sinless life. The way that you accept that free gift of having your sins forgiven and being granted eternal life, being granted his righteousness and eternal life is that you must repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. That means to turn from your sin. It means to trust completely in what God has promised and to stop trusting in yourself or anything else that you're trusting for in order to be made right with him. That is how you can know that you have received redemption. And for those who have received that redemption, here's one of the benefits, one of the glorious benefits, the purchase secured, not only the, the forgiveness of sins for his people, but the future redemption of the bodies of those who are in him. When Christ tears through the earth's atmosphere in his second coming, what will happen is all those who have trusted him will be granted these these new bodies. What will these bodies be like? Paul says this in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so our bodies will be like Christ's glorious body, transformed from mortal to immortal, from corruptible to incorruptible, from from weak to strong, bodies that are fashioned to live forever in the new heaven and the new earth in the presence of our glorious God and our Savior Jesus Christ. The place where all harmful elements have been eradicated. The place of security and peace and righteousness and, and unending satisfaction and joy forever. Paul continues in verse 24. He says, for in this hope we were saved. This liberating hope we were saved. This hope that would liberate us. What Christ would do when he returns. See, when we were converted... When we trusted in Christ, we didn't think that, that we had received the full benefits of our salvation, did we? I hope you didn't, because you are still here in a fallen world, and there's still Hurricane Dorians that are, that are churning out there, and one may come here next. We don't, we don't know. So we see that, that we trusted cr- pro- God's promise of full liberation would come in the future, and that's what Paul means, for in this hope we were saved. We were trusting for something future, Paul continues in verse 24 and 25, Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, we're in the same boat, essentially, as we were when we were converted, when we were saved. We're in the same boat in the sense that we're still we're still not seeing what we've hoped for. We've, it's not been fully realized at this point. And so, this liberating glory that we hope for. Therefore, what we need to do is we need to continually renew our hope in this jaw-dropping magnificence of future glory. And when we are able to renew such a hope, when we have such a hope, I want you to see what Paul says it produces. Paul says this, that, but if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. You see, our, our hope, has a direct correlation with our ability to be patient and endure suffering. See, this word patience carries with it the sense of having the power to withstand hardship and stress and difficulties. You want to know how you can endure any and every suffering that comes your way in this world? By God's grace, of course, fill your mind with the details that God has revealed about future glory in his word. Fill your mind with the details. That means be heavenly minded and be heavenly minded as you're looking to what has God said about the future, about future glory. Use your sanctified imagination to envision what it's going to be like to live in a body and a world that is free from sin and free from the effects of sin and free from the curse. Free of cancer. Free of Lyme's disease. Free of fibromyalgia, free of Hurricane Dorian's, free of death, free of relational conflict, free of financial struggles, free of depression, and the best part, living in the stunning presence of our glorious God and our Savior Jesus Christ. We need to set our, our minds, our imaginations often on this vision. Here's what John says, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. As we fill our minds, our imaginations with these future glories, we will be given the grace to do what God is calling us to do as we wait. And that is we will be able to groan in hope because the jaw-dropping magnificence of future glory makes the bitterness of present suffering seem insignificant in comparison. Let us be a people who have our eyes set on Christ's glory and his second coming that will liberate us forever. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful that you show us why things are the way they are. We're so grateful that you've given us, Lord, uh, an encouragement today that in the midst of such deep pain and hurt as we see in the Bahamas today that that there is hope. Hope of of restoration. Hope that creation itself will be set free from bondage and there will be nothing like this that happens in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, grant us the grace that we need to to take our eyes off the affairs of everyday life often (laughs) and to saturate our minds with this this future glory that, is, that you've, you've laid before us to, to groan in hope after. Lord, I pray for your grace for your people today. Those who are suffering, I pray that they would be encouraged, Lord, to groan in hope. Groan in hope as they wait, as they long for Christ's glory to be revealed and his liberating glory to transform them and change them and usher them in to the fullness of their salvation. We praise you for your word, in Jesus' name, amen.